Talk Money is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <coughs> For updates, further breakdowns, and past episodes of this podcast, sign up at thetalkmoney.com. If you enjoy our podcast, help us get the word out. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to help us reach more ears. And now you can sign up for our newsletter, where we curate the best money topics of the week from across the internet. It's quick, informative, and most importantly, fun. Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash newsletter. Hey everyone, Mesh here. Throughout this season of Talk Money, the world has changed over and over again. For more than a year, we've been riding waves of optimism and dread, reluctance and reawakened joy. As the vaccination rate continues to rise, things are looking up. The industries we've highlighted over the past few months, live events, higher education, content creation, and real estate are mostly on the mend, or at least finding a path forward. But for some industries, the pandemic wasn't the first nail in the coffin. It was hammered in alongside rows of glimmering nails that came before it. Ask yourself this. Do you enjoy fighting traffic, parking problems, or shopping in cold, wet weather? Of course you don't. So why do it? Shopping should be pleasurable. A time to relax, a time to explore. Comfortable, convenient, and a whole lot more. More is what Mountain View Mall in Midland has. More than 50 stores and services. When you need something, whether it's a new pair of pants or a refill of your shampoo, where do you get it? Increasingly, the answer is online. Even before the pandemic, retail had been completely reshaped by the convenience and free shipping offered by Amazon and other brands that built their reputations on the internet. And now that going to stores is a hassle and a potential health risk, what does the future of shopping look like? There was one specific moment, yes, uh, New Year's Eve. I was in Chicago with six of my buddies, just very low-key New Year's Eve, watching the ball drop. I'm just sitting there like, fuck, man. Like, I'm not happy at my job. It's another new year. Like, just do something different. Jason Scott is a men's and women's wear designer based in New York. His eponymous brand, Jason Scott Clothing, was born in 2015. But before that, he was working as an assistant at a big talent agency in L.A., the kind of job where you make minimum wage but are still expected to show up to work in a suit. Our offices in L.A. were right next to Barney's, so I would spend my lunch breaks in there with these sales employees. They all knew I was an assistant making about $28,000 a year. They knew I couldn't afford the Brioni, the Catan suits, but they let me feel the fabrics, try them on, experience them. And that feeling that I got when you put on that perfectly tailored suit is kind of where the love for fashion began to arise, I guess. When his office closed down for a long holiday break, Jason decided to stop postponing his dream. He quit his assistant job and became a night manager at a Japanese fusion restaurant, leaving his days free to plan his first clothing collection and figure out how to get a fashion business off the ground. He also had to make an important first decision. What kind of clothes did he want to make? He's more of a casual dresser himself, but he couldn't shake that glow he felt when he walked into work in a suit and tie. There's something about that well-fitting suit that makes you feel special and important and confident. And at this time, there wasn't a casual wear brand that you could have that same feeling. This might sound absurd now. With so many people working from home, athleisure has exploded, and high-quality comfort comes at a premium. But even a few years ago, that wasn't the case. Jason made another pilgrimage to Barney's to check out the competition. And I remember 
spent about an hour and a half in Barney's that day, and there was nothing in the market that I could find. James Purse existed, and I think he's done an unbelievable job, but I feel like his focus is much more West Coast, surf vibe, which is great. It's just I'm much more of a East Coast, Midwest, dressed up version of that. So I was trying to take what I love from a well-fitting suit and incorporate that into a t-shirt, into a hoodie, into sweatpants so you could wear those pieces and not feel so casual. Figuring out the vision for the line was just the first step. Jason now had to get the business side of things moving. So to start, there was no money. Um, It was credit cards. It was acting like I knew what I was doing so nobody questioned me and sort of making 20 bucks and putting that 20 bucks back into it. But a lot of it was just relationships, networking, getting terms from people and just begging to be lenient with payment because I knew that I was getting, you know, 20 grand paid on Thursday. I'll give you 10 of it. Just please give me a few days to get it paid. And I was very fortunate in the beginning in LA that everyone was relatively nice. As he learned more about the fashion industry, Jason started to get his bearings. Through early orders, he learned what a factor was, an upfront payment from a company that pays out a percentage of your total invoice paid as soon as you ship your products to help with costs. He found a few ways to defray and postpone his expenses, but when it came to finding actual customers, he was at a loss about where to start. It was all kind of crazy because I had no idea what I was doing, and it was all so premature. I knew I didn't want to launch a line until I had a little bit of a collection, meaning about five to ten pieces, and I remember going and asking a friend of a friend, like, you know, what do you do? That friend of a friend tipped him off to the importance of trunk shows. They exist in many industries. The first trunk show was a so-called Great Exhibition in 1851, held in London's Hyde Park. Since then, they've evolved into semi-annual events. And in fashion, they're essential networking conventions, bringing together wholesale buyers and upstart brands. It can be an overwhelming environment for seasoned professionals. And for newcomers, well... I'm by myself in the booth. I have no idea what I'm doing. People are asking me, what is, you know, what are your deliveries? What are your ship windows? I have no fucking clue what any of that is. So my response was just like, what do you want it to be? Jason held his own, but then three men approached his booth. They tried on clothes and started taking photos. In my mind, I'm just like, oh great, these guys are gonna rip me off. Like, why are they trying on my stuff? And at the trade show, everybody wears a badge. Their badges were flipped. So the guy takes off my sweatshirt, his badge flips, and it says Barney's Japan, and I instantly just had a panic attack. Barney's, the final frontier. Jason quickly envisioned the possibilities. His clothes could hang in the very stores that he frequented on his unpaid lunch breaks just a few years earlier. The guys from Barney's placed their first order of Jason Scott clothing, and the brand was officially in business. And from there, it was just a learning experience of, you know, actually having ship windows, actually having collections launch in different seasons. I didn't know you had to do different seasons. Like, I didn't know there was a fall and a spring and a resort and a holiday. Just thought there was a collection. Starting any business, but especially one in fashion, comes with a lot of learning curves. Having a physical space for people to interact with your products and give you feedback is essential. And because retail space is expensive, trunk shows are a crucial place to start. My name is Molly Howard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Lolene, which is a direct-to-consumer women's wear line. In 2015, Molly and her partners founded Lolene, 
a high-end clothing brand known for striped sailor sweaters and luxury knits. She came to the fashion world not as a vogue-devouring clothes horse, but as someone deeply interested in the ways of business, finance, and consumer habits overlapped. I somehow ended up interning at an investment bank, Credit Suisse, which I actually, much to my surprise, ended up really, really loving and then started doing that full time. And during my time there, I was exposed to a lot of deals that were on the retail side. And for me, that was always the most exciting because it was like we would work on a deal. I would spend, you know, obviously 20 hour days, seven days a week closing a deal. And then I'd actually get to like walk out on the street and pass by the store or the brand that we'd been working on. From there, she jumped to the then up and coming denim brand Rag and Bone where she worked on merchandising and business development. She and the company grew together for a few years, but she craved starting something new, something she could put her own stamp on. The more I just thought about it, the more I was like, I kind of wanted to be my own, but that felt so crazy to me. And then I met these two women, Meredith and Valerie, who are my now partners. Meredith and Valerie are Meredith Melling and Valerie McCauley, veteran Vogue staffers who'd come up with the concept for Laline. They just needed help visualizing the business side of things. And that's where Molly came in. And I, that moment for me, I was like, oh, this is kind of everything I'd wanted just coming to me at my feet. So instead of coming back to them with like ideas and suggestions, I went into my full Molly banker mode and I came back with like a full deck (laughs) that was basically like a business plan of the company, what it should look like, that it should be direct to consumer that it should be buy now, wear now, that we should be doing weekly drops. Molly had a lot of ideas based on her time working with Rag and & Bone and other brands. She saw that there were consistent pitfalls for clothing lines, becoming dependent on wholesale, winding up with too much seasonal stock, overspending in the early stages. Molly presented her ideas to Meredith and Valerie. More than anything, she was excited to apply her knowledge to a new enterprise. Like, you can have this plan even if you don't think I'm the right person, but I want to be the CEO and I want to be a third owner. And at that moment, they were like, okay. (laughs) It was basically like that. It happened quite quickly. Um, And then we kind of went off to the races to figure out how to actually start it. Laleen began with very specific intentions. Molly and her partners knew the value of e-commerce and digital sales, and they used modern shopping habits to shape their business plans. But they couldn't ignore the value of showing their products in a physical space, especially before they had name recognition. We had been doing trunk shows since day one. It was really funny because we were this very like modern, new way of doing fashion brands, like all online, e-commerce, digitally native, da da da. Yet we were doing like door-to-door sales, <laughs> very old school. A show window for the wares of the world at the New York Coliseum. From 60 foreign countries, more than $60 million worth of goods and services. Fashions are included. There's some things you just don't learn when your customers come to you from behind a computer screen. Molly, Meredith, and Valerie sat in their Laleen booth at trunk shows and watched as potential customers interacted with their clothes. They learned things they never would have known otherwise being there with the customer, watching them try on the clothing, watching how they looked at themselves in the mirror, how they react, how if they put their hands in their pockets, you know, just like we get tons of emails to our customer service from our customers, but there's something about seeing it in real life and hearing the first reaction when someone puts a piece of clothing on or even just sees it on a rack and touches it and is like, oh, I need to have this. One of the biggest takeaways from these trunk shows was something that's obvious to most women. If you've ever shopped for women's clothes, you probably know the very specific way in which they're lacking. 
Early on, someone put on one of our dresses at a trunk show and she was just like, oh my God, it has pockets. <laughs> no one ever wrote into customer service saying like, I love how your dresses have pockets. But at every trunk show, a woman would say that. So we just like have made sure that on every dress we've ever made, we put pockets in it because it's such a small thing. It doesn't change the design and women love it. Molly and her Lalien co-founders found inspiration in other old school sales techniques. They moved their trunk shows into people's homes and relied on word of mouth advertising, selling to friends and friend of friends. And it could be set up however they wanted it to be set up, whether it was a cocktail hour, we've done some that were panels, sometimes it was a lunch. There were just like a bunch of different ways it could look. The at-home sales parties were hugely successful and became a significant part of Laleen's business. Shopping from your living room is nothing new. From traveling salesmen in the 1800s, carting literal trunks from home to home, to the Tupperware parties of the 1950s and 60s, selling products to people where they live is hugely effective. Now let's go to a little town in New Jersey where things are really popping. Yes, there's a party going on at Mrs. Betty Martin's house. It's a Tupperware party, and it's really fun. The girls get together and meet their old friends and make some new ones. Then there's a demonstration by one of the Tupperware dealers who lives in... Tupperware parties were a huge boom to women's financial independence. When many women couldn't have careers outside the home, they found success working within it. Things have changed a lot since then. But the invaluable networks that women foster were exactly what helped the women of Laleen as they grew their brand. Like they were becoming some of our best customers. And then they were becoming really good advocates for the brand in their smaller communities. So basically based on that experience, we were like, we should open a physical store. Since they all lived in New York, it was a no-brainer to open the first Laleen store in Manhattan. They ended up opting for a space uptown where they had attract a perfect mix of well-heeled locals and spendy tourists. We found this little gem of a store on Madison Avenue and we pulled the trigger. It all kind of happened quickly. It was a super homegrown build-out. It's like half of the stuff in there is from our three apartments. But we wanted it to feel like you were in one of our apartments. So it was like our dream closet is basically what we turned that store into. For small brands, a first store is an opportunity to invite customers into your head, to walk into a space and experience the vision you've had all along. For a lot of companies, that first shot at a physical presence needs to count. There's something about the store that made it more real. Jason Scott again. We were growing the brand, and for the first seven months, I ran the store by myself. Remember the second day, someone was like, what's your return policy? I was like, oh shit, we need a return policy. But there was something about the store that just, it made it seem real. I love clothing and I love shopping, but I have a hard time finding a retail experience that I enjoy going to. There's very few stores that I'll frequent often that I feel comfortable in. So I wanted to create an experience I think that was different than what exists in the world. In 2016, Jason opened his first store. It was a small space in the West Village, but it was a start. Two years later, he expanded with his real masterpiece, a 2,000-square-foot flagship in Tribeca, complete with fireplace, matcha cafe, ping-pong table, and a full bar stocked for his particular taste and spirits. It was his dream home, distilled into a shoppable space. You know, the old saying is every square foot of your store has to be sellable space, and what are you selling per square foot? I think that's ludicrous. I think... You need a store that gives the customer an experience. You need to walk into a store and feel something. You need to feel a connection with a brand. If you can feel that connection, you have a successful store. Um, You're seeing a lot of empty office buildings, a lot of vacant retail. It starts with the tenants who aren't able to generate revenue, 
aren't able to pay their rent. And then that goes back to the owners who aren't able to cover their debt service, their mortgage that they have on the properties. When you don't have that expected cash flow, you're going to default and the, the bank is going to take that property back from you. This is Alessio Trapiano. He's a vice president at CBRE, the largest commercial real estate company in the world. Alessio knows how deeply connected real estate is to, well, everything else. Uh, um, it is involved in nearly every facet of every single person's life without them even knowing it. It is such a massive, massive industry that it's next to impossible to describe without getting into a lengthy conversation. When the pandemic hit last March, physical stores were closed to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The last thing anyone wanted was to risk their health just to shop in person. In lots of places, but especially in New York, residents washed as neighborhood mainstays, and even bigger chain stores went dark. Over time, a lot of window displays were emptied and replaced with for rent signs. I mean, you walk down Soho, and a lot of these designer clothing places, they've boarded up and just closed up shop. They'll come back if and when they feel comfortable or when it makes sense. This was a trend that was happening and that we were seeing in retail, um, you know, really since Amazon started taking over online shopping. It's no secret that in-person shopping has been on the decline. For years now, storefronts have increasingly gone dark. Famous department stores like Lord & Taylor and even Jason Scott's beloved Barney's have filed for bankruptcy. Shopping malls were once veritable playgrounds for consumers. A neon utopia where you could buy a pair of Skechers, drink an orange Julius, see a movie, and maybe even ride a Ferris wheel. I mean, I think some of the larger department stores who have gone or are going out of business were really struggling prior to all of this anyway, and I think this just compounded all of those issues. They had a lot of debt, which made this time especially challenging when they didn't have any cash coming in to pay down their debt. I mean, you look at a lot of these like regional malls that are just completely empty and completely decimated. No Sears, no Best Buy, no Target. You know, a lot of them are, are just closing up shop because there's nobody in there actually shopping. Stripped of its shops, a mall becomes a cavernous curiosity. Empty malls have become attractions in their own right, joining the ranks of spooky buildings like abandoned hospitals or old mansions that fascinate YouTube explorers. Here's a directory. There's a bunch of just blanked out names on there for stores. The only store on this list is Babies Are Us, and that's out of business now, too. There are a lot of ideas out there. The well-positioned, you know, the high-end malls or the outdoor malls that are built with, you know, people walking around. It's almost like a shopping mall turned inside out where all the stores face out instead of in. I feel like those are usually do better than your indoor malls. Those feel like the 90s. You know, my mom used to drop me off at the mall and tell me she'd pick me up in three hours and I'd like go and run and try and talk to a girl while I was there. Those days are all gone. There are a lot of reasons that department stores and larger retailers are having trouble keeping up. The convenience of online shopping, yes, but also the changing needs of designers and brand owners. It used to be that wholesale was the only way for a smaller brand to grow. Department stores had huge customer bases already. So getting a few racks at a place like Lord & Taylor had a huge impact on a brand's reach. Chain stores have multiple locations, so a small collection could reach buyers across the country. But that kind of opportunity comes with trade-offs. The negatives outweighed the positives in that I think when you become overly dependent on wholesale, 
meaning that you are doing more business through partners instead of through your own channels, be that your website or your physical own stores, you end up losing a little bit of who you are because you have to appeal to what they want and what their customers want. So once you lose your authenticity, I think you really are on a downward spiral (laughs) towards the end because a lot of the reason that people invest in these companies is because they're investing in this story, this lifestyle, this everything else, especially for a brand like ours that we really wanted to make like a lifestyle brand. It's so much more than just a piece of clothing, right? Brand identity aside, wholesale can also just be plain bad for business. You know, you have lower margins. They mark down at their whim, essentially, which can really hurt your own business because then you have to kind of match them. They are adhered to a fashion calendar, which is pretty out of date at this point, I would say, because I think most people just want to buy things when they want to wear it as opposed to like shopping a season ahead. For Molly and brands like Laline, it's vital to control their products and how they interact with their customers. The brand is as much about the ethos and experience as it is about the actual clothes. Wholesale is still lucrative, though. Molly and her partners discovered that certain stores are more understanding and adaptable to newer shopping habits. Nordstrom, for one. Instead of doing seasonal buys from us, they do monthly buys that coincide with our drops, which is huge because not only does that mimic our drops so we don't have to give them product that we haven't yet released on our own site, but it also helps from a cash flow perspective because another thing that's challenging about wholesale, I think for young brands especially, is you have to invest, buy all of this inventory, sell it to them, and then you have to wait 45 days to get paid. But for us, they've been a really amazing partner because they're just really adaptable to the new way of of doing things. And then there are the retail brands that aren't focused on fashion. They deal with the same kind of question, sell to customers directly, or try to get wholesale orders in an existing store with an existing customer base. But there are lots of added obstacles when you're selling something edible. My name is Paulini Doha, and I'm the founder of Mukto Club, which is a line of premium crafted, non-alcoholic cocktails. Pauline started Mocktail Club in 2018, and it's exactly what it sounds like. A line of non-alcoholic cocktails in a variety of flavors, developed by Pauline and her team as a zesty alternative to boozy refreshments. She was first inspired when she was eight months pregnant, working in the renewable energy sector. And at the time, I had just closed a transaction and I was celebrating with a number of my colleagues at the time. And I was buying everyone drinks, buying everyone wine and food. But then I wanted something for me. I wanted to feel included. I wanted something that was crafted, but yet healthy. And when I asked the bartender, I got your standard seltzer and water. And I figured they had to be a better way. A friend in the group was a venture capitalist and thought she was onto something. She went home that night, bought a domain name, and went on to spend her maternity leave building a plan for the Mocktail Club brand. Pauline came to the U.S. and to her current career via a circuitous path. She left Nigeria when she was 10 for London and spent a year in Paris before making her way to D.C. for college. After that, she worked in investment banking and made her way to a job at the World Bank, working with emerging markets. She traveled the world before deciding to go to business school. And from there, she entered the world of renewable energy. I think a lot of that sort of international perspective is is essentially bottled up in a lot of my cocktails. And that's how, in a sense, everything has come together. And 1% of my sales goes to clean water access in emerging countries. So I think that whole perspective has gotten full circle. 
That international flavor was important to Pauline, and it informed what is arguably the most important part of a beverage business, the recipes. I get inspired by a country first, and then I work my way towards the ingredients. So Capri Sour is inspired by Italy. You know, it's like if I was drinking something non-alcoholic in a nice island, what would it feel like? That was the first one. Through some trial and error, Pauline developed four signature cocktail flavors. She noticed something interesting during testing, that people wanted wholly new recipes, not watered-down imitations of the drinks they loved with alcohol. Initially, I'd started off creating the sort of faux sangria or faux mojito. And what I realized is people were anchored on something that they had beforehand. And so having a non-alcoholic version was was never great. No one was super excited about these sort of different takes on something that they were already anchored on. So every time I sort of pushed the envelope, I played around with chili peppers or cardamom and cloves, people got excited. And that's when I realized I had something. Once she had the products figured out, she moved on to the next challenge, trying to find customers and gauge their interest. I always felt like, you know, let the consumer tell you if there was a market. And so farmer's market was great. I was making these handmade labels these handcrafted products and selling them for $5. And I realized, oh, there was a market, you know, and I'd meet so many different people with different stories, you know, like some people had been sober for 13 years and they were super happy. They had found my product or they had health reasons why they didn't drink. I started really appreciating the spectrum of people and why they didn't drink. It was not a monolithic group of people. Pauline moved swiftly from farmer's markets to higher-end establishments. One day, she went over to a fancy restaurant in D.C. where she lives. She had samples of her mocktails in tow, and the chef agreed to a tasting. And they bought into it. They started selling the handcrafted products in their store. And that's that was sort of the first validation. And then the second validation for me to really feel I could do this full time was if I could get into Whole Foods. That was sort of my next batch because I was thinking, how can I scale this? And the people I was targeting were the Whole Food customers, people who were interested in trying things with cardamom or chili peppers. They were adventurous. Whole Foods, the organic grocery behemoth. Getting into Whole Foods is life-changing for a lot of health food brands. How did you get into Whole Foods? How did that process even work? Did you do you walk into a Whole Foods and you try to talk to somebody and give them samples? Yep, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when certain things are not on the shelves, I like to call the buyers and bug them. As the owner of a retail brand, Pauline expected to feel the impact of the pandemic. But she didn't realize how America's changing relationship with alcohol would reshape her consumer base. There was just more traffic. People were purchasing more. And I think initially when it started, I feel people were shopping for basic necessities. You know, it's the bread, the water, the eggs, and they were hunkering down. Yes, maybe people kept buying more alcohol as a necessity (laughs) with their bread and everything else. But what was interesting was on e-commerce, the sober, curious community started buying a lot more non-alcoholic drinks. When in-store sales slowed, Pauline chalked it up to the dip in in in-person shopping. Or maybe the people still going to stores were buying more alcohol and less health drinks. But it was a totally different story on the internet, 
And maybe it's because the sober community is driven by the millennials and the Gen Zs. And, you know, they look at brands online, they shop online, they live online, they meet other people online, and that's a whole world. So that created this whole ecosystem over the pandemic that has been thriving. Back in New York, Jason and Molly were figuring out what to do with their physical stores. I kind of respond to a crisis and I need chaos. So I just was like, okay, here is like the list of everything I need to get done today, tomorrow, the next day to make sure that we don't have to fire one employee and that this business is still existing on the other side of whatever's to come. Obviously, none of us anticipated it would be this long and this crazy, but that was a really scary moment. Just thinking about all the obligations I had in payments that were due in the next week, two weeks, month, whatever it was, like between the rent on our Madison store, the rent on our office in Soho, we had just signed a lease for a new store in another city on March 1st. And, you know, obviously payroll and production. Jason had also ramped up production right before the pandemic. We had a bunch of collabs that we had just launched. We had a thing with Major League Baseball, which was huge for us. We had a PO from Equinox, which we were really excited to ship. We were talking to Nordstrom a little bit. I felt like for the first time we had the most brand momentum we've ever had. We had all these unbelievable things planned. Like right before COVID was the moment where I was like, shit, like it's going to happen this year. And then COVID happened and it all just kind of stopped instantly. Equinox canceled their PO. All the meetings got canceled. And then it was just a constant like cancel to cancel to cancel. And then just everything just stopped. Jason and Molly went into crisis mode. Molly started working the phones. She called their store's landlord and asked for flexibility, which they were luckily granted. She called her wholesale accounts, which had canceled orders since their warehouses and stores were all closed. She called their production vendors to cut their existing orders and find homes for those that were already done. Then she sat down with Meredith and Valerie, and they agreed to take a necessary step, one they never plan on taking. They created a sales section. Because part of our business is that we don't put things on sale, you know, we have sale kind of built into the price of our items because they're direct, because we cut out the middleman and we don't over markup in order to pass on our cost savings to our customer. We really never wanted our customer to get used to finding things from us on sale. We don't even design in seasons. Like our stuff is core, it never goes away. So we decided given the fact that we had so much inventory, we needed cash and it was a really good decision on our part because it was super, super successful. We made a ton of money that really has like held us over basically throughout this time. And it was a really important decision that we did that. For Laleen, working from home also gave them a surprising opportunity. They weren't able to photograph new inventory in a studio or hire models. So they used what they had on hand and it brought the whole staff together to collaborate in ways they never had before. Because it required us to change a lot of a lot of the way we did things so even if that means that our like design director has to now be the fit model and and her husband's taking photos of her in her apartment and those are our photos to look at new product coming in or whatever it is like they were all just like in for the ride jason and his staff were equally close and equally at a loss as to how they'd survive jason shut down his store on march 15th and he sent his employees home even though he didn't know what to tell them, he had to say something. I get a little sort of uh, emotional talking about it because 
I'll, I'll make a rule that like, I never lie to my employees ever. Um, but that was the first time I looked them in the eye and I said, listen, no one's getting fired. Everyone's getting paid their normal salary. We had about another month of payroll in the bank account and it was scary. And it was hard because I knew we had a responsibility for these employees, but I had no idea how we were going to pay them. And the easiest thing is to lay everybody off and, you know, try to save myself. But I wasn't going to do that because without our employees, we don't have a brand. We don't have a company. So for me to put myself in front of the employees just made no sense. Jason decided to put his staff first. But as devoted as he was, loyalty couldn't pay the bills. They had a month of run rate when they closed their stores. Jason didn't know how he would keep the company afloat. And then he got a DM from Aaron Foster. All right, so if their foray into fashion doesn't work out, the Foster sisters, Aaron and Sarah, might have a second career as stand-up comedians. You'll see. Aaron's one of those L.A. women who seem to do it all. Acting, writing, running a fashion line, and even serving as a creative head for the dating app Bumble. She was a fan of Jason's clothes and reached out on Instagram with an offer. Which basically was, I can imagine you're going through a tough time. What can I do to help? Can I promote any products for you? And I was like, holy fuck, this is unbelievable. I was like, thank you so much. Like, this is huge. You have no idea what this means. And like an hour later, I uh, look at my Instagram and, and there's this six-part story from her. And she basically does a whole story on the brand and how we're going through a tough time and talking about me and still promoting these products. And then like five minutes in, boom, sale, 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 $500, $1,200, $2,000. $2, I'm just like, holy shit. This woman is going to literally save our company. Those sales led to more sales. And more friends with influence began promoting Jason Scott clothing on Instagram. Celebrity orders trickled in. Jason couldn't believe the generosity of his friends and acquaintances or the enormous impact it had on his bottom line. They did something that seems so simple in the sense they just put something on social media and like, no, they took time out of their day to think about other people when everyone was going through something. Everyone was going through a, a difficult situation and those moments didn't just save us. They put us in a position today to where we're crushing it online and sort of making up for our loss of revenue in store. Out of all the celebrities that supported Jason's brand, there's one he can't help but mention. And with good reason. It's Indiana f***ing Jones. So let me start by saying he didn't come into the store, but he's a customer and a fan of the brand. Never forget the day he actually called the store calls the store, I won't say her name, answers the phone. She says, thank you for calling Jason Scott. This is so-and-so. He says, hey, this is Harrison Ford. I'd like to order some t-shirts. Click. Hangs up on him. Calls back. I think she hung up on him twice, to be honest. Finally, he calls back and she's like, Jason, some guy on the phone says Harrison Ford. He won't stop calling. I don't know what to do. I was just like, I was tired. So I was like, hello. He said, Hi. And that was it. I was like, holy fuck, this is Harrison Ford. Having celebrity clientele can be a huge boost for a brand. You might get name-checked in magazines, noted in paparazzi photos, or if you're lucky, tagged in a social media post. It's an ideal form of free advertising. Ads have changed so much in the past few decades. Now, a billboard on a highway or two pages in vogue have less impact than, say, an influential friend shouting you out on Instagram stories. 
When it comes to clothing brands, celebrity spokespeople are much rarer these days. Except for maybe Michael Jordan, who's been wearing Hanes briefs and commercials for over 30 years. When I'm on the court, I just don't make shots. I take them. So when I'm done slamming, I'm jamming in Hanes fashion underwear. But he's a rarity, and he's expensive. For brands in their early stages, there are more effective and economical ways to get attention. If you want to just go, you know, Facebook ads and, and paid advertising, it can be really, really expensive. And it can be kind of like a hole that you go and get in. It's hard to get out. While you do have more room in your margin to play because you're cutting out that middleman, you have to spend more essentially to get the product in people's hands. So we didn't spend any money on advertising in the first year. And it was all just through purely organic strategy. And still, we've never paid an influencer or a celebrity to wear or promote the product because... It's usually pretty clear to me, at least, when you can tell that people are just doing something because they got paid to do it. It's been a hard year, and even with the advancements in science and the promise of vaccines, it's not over yet. Retail stores shut down to protect people, and now people will be responsible for protecting their favorite brands. The most important thing to do for stores and consumers, and hey, even commercial landlords, is adapt. Alessio from CBRE knows that landlords have the power to gut their neighborhoods or, if they choose to, enrich them. If you have a good landlord and and you are a good landlord, you'll work with them because you realize that that's the lifeblood of the community. It's not the TJ Maxx around the corner that's really driving the community. Small businesses in this country have been affected much, much more than, than the big guys. I will say that. Pauline hopes, for the sake of her business, but also for the sake of inclusion, that people make space for a bigger range of lifestyles. Over the past year, Pauline's seen a shift in her orders. Large corporations, which usually send their employees wine or spirits as a token of appreciation, have opted for Pauline's mocktails as a sober-friendly option. This pandemic has changed all of us, and employers have a choice about whether to make room for those changes. I'm hoping from a corporation standpoint, people want to be more inclusive as a whole. You don't know what your employees drink, and it's important to kind of ensure that everyone feels taken care of during this period. And I think it also promotes a healthier lifestyle. I mean, if you're a banker or a lawyer in terms of your day-to-day job, which is stressful. I'm not sure if your corporation feels bad during the pandemic and sends you more liquor. (laughs) It's, It's a great thing, you know? Alessio still thinks about all those empty malls. The thriving, monumental wonderland of his childhood is gone, but he sees a lot of potential in what's left and urges landlords and developers to expand their idea of what commerce has to look like. The owners that are going to do well at a time like this when things are changing faster than they ever have before are the ones that can adapt and be forward thinking. It doesn't do you well to sit on a property and have it vacant and have zero income coming in for an extended period of time because you're making no money. And we may see like a consolidation almost of ownership on the retail side. And a lot of them, they may just not want to deal with it anymore. Pauline, Molly, and Jason are all still hopeful. They sustained themselves through one of the roughest periods in history for business owners, not to mention everyone else. Even though e-commerce plays a huge role in their growth, there's something special about walking into a store. It's not just about touching the fabric, 
trying it on in usually the most unflattering lighting you've ever seen, or seeing an outfit on yourself and not a model. It's an important source of human connection. Finding something that speaks to you, bringing your friends to help you find the perfect dress for a date, experimenting with styles you never thought you could pull off. And for owners like Molly, it's a sign that what you've built is real. It's so funny of all of the things that I've ever done and all the moments in my career, when my parents walked into that store, my mom grew up in New Jersey and my dad grew up in New York, seeing Madison Avenue is this like iconic, you know, gold standard essentially. When they walked into that store and they were like, wow, our daughter has a store on Madison Avenue, they were, I think, the most proud of me they've ever been. It was, it was funny because I was like, what about the brand? I started this thing three years ago. And they were like, yeah, but you have a store in Madison. And it just became legitimate in a different way. Stores offer more than products. They're an upteen square foot extension of a person's priorities, passions, and worldview. They can create room for people with shared interests to find each other. Maybe because you love music and that store has a live jazz every Friday and you want to go see it. Or maybe they serve liquor that you like or they have a ping pong table or, or their employees are just cool and nice. And the old way of retail is dead. And now, you know, the, the word experiential retail is, is being overused right now, but it's true. You need an experience. I don't think retail is, is dying. I think it's evolving. I think it's changing. I think it's exciting for me to be a part of this change because we can create something that is special. So I believe the world will open. And when it does, how are you positioned for that? So not just waiting for the world to open, but being present and figuring out how to play in that world when it does open. I'm looking forward to being part of this fascinating, nascent, emerging industry and being part of it as it grows, as people are curious about being mindful about what they put in their bodies. So I'm looking forward to being part of that conversation. I'm looking forward to being a woman of color in this industry and just changing the landscape. By the way, we reopened our store and it's obviously doing nowhere near what it was doing before, but it's still chugging along, you know? And like, even when we went to the store the first day to like check in and get it ready to open the next day, there were people knocking on the door like, are you guys open? Are you back? Are you open? Can we come in? And we were like, not yet, but tomorrow. And they were just eager for that moment of like trying it on in our fun mirror that we curated for them and asking like what goes with this and how do we wear this and I think people I think people want that and I think they always will as the world reopens take a look around at the shops that survived change out your sweats for an hour and pay a visit to your favorite store there's still time to find something that fits thank you to Molly Howard Jason Scott Pollyanne Doho and Alessio Trapiano for sharing your stories with us Want to learn more about the topics we cover? Sign up at thetalkmoney.com slash guides to get access to our comprehensive educational guides and hear full interviews from all our episodes this season. That link again is thetalkmoney.com slash guides and use the code podcast for a 20% discount. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Briley. Our mix engineer is Valentino Rivera with additional help from Eduardo Perez. This episode featured music by Blue Dot Sessions. We appreciate you sharing this with your friends and, of course, subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.